This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Marcus Green and Chong Lun Lian from Tribe, their story of the company and role in the fintech space across Southeast Asia, and they also share their perspectives on fintech across Asia Pacific. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Lian. Hey, Bernard. Morning, Bernard. Good to have you here. Thank you for hosting me at the Tribe office, right? Yes. That's where you are. Somewhere Correct. in Shenton Way, Singapore. Robinson Road, to be very precise. Yeah. Our and secret bat cave. Well, it's pretty interesting because today I have two guests, Marcus Green and Chong Lun Lian. And they are, Marcus is currently the Chief Executive Officer of Tribe and also the founder. And uh, Chong Lun, who have just joined him as the Chief Operating Officer, they are part of the founding team. So I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation because we are talking about Tribe and their recent 30 mil round and plus... I think Marcus has been deep in work with fintech across Asia Pacific. I know him since the days of the startup bootcamp, but to start off, I need to get to know you both of you better. So to start, maybe I'll start with Marcus. How do you start your career? Thanks, Bernard. It's good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. What does the word career even mean? Huh? So I think being German, you get it by my accent now. I'm a typical engineer. I was solving problems in aerospace initially, material science and other aerospace nautical problems. So yeah, I was doing that for some time. I also was in China and spent some time in Tianjin, just building airplanes. But then I think I really quickly moved into, into tech and was in London for a good number of years, four years, to start companies in clean tech, in fact, energy management systems. I started companies in um, IoT and children's uh, gameware, gaming. That was very interesting. And then I really made my way into, into fintech, having realized that there is a very large gap four or five years ago between startups and banks. And that's when I co-founded Startup Bootcamp Fintech in London as the now and still then leading incubator for fintech startup in London, New York, and then Singapore. And so, yeah, it was a, a very interesting, I think, journey where a lot of uh, different things happened at the same time. And I think in tech, everything is happening at the same time anyway. But uh, the focus always was on building companies and then um, selling companies as well. And, and now being with Tribe, I think, is a result of eight years of engineering, solving problems, and building technology startups. We'll get to that a bit later, but again, uh, we know each other since the days of Cambridge, so why don't you talk about your career? Pretty interesting one too. Well, unlike my millennial colleague, Marcus over there, I had a much more stable, steady career path. As all Singaporean males do, I joined the military, but unlike many of them, I actually decided to stay on. So I was in the Singapore Special Forces and I was there for 14 years. Along the way, I also did a bunch of experimentation, innovation in the Future Systems Directorate. So we were given a small group, great guys, and given a mandate to disrupt things and to really experiment. So that was my first taste of what it felt like to be an internal entrepreneur within a very large organization. Best bunch of guys you could have, best bosses, great carte blanche. I loved it. Subsequently, I left the military and moved to McKinsey in China. After that, I was the Southeast Asia head for the Center for Government. In that capacity, I worked a lot with companies, but also obviously with governments on the side of economic productivity and trying to help them drive innovation and efficiency. So I did that for a bunch of years and decided, you know, I quite liked the sense of ownership that I had when I was in the military. 
I was everything from a platoon commander to a battalion commander, leading up to six, seven hundred soldiers. And I thought it'd be really quite nice to marry this notion of ownership for outcomes as well as innovation and experimentation. And that's why I know one of the other co-founders in Tribe very well, the CIO, and got to know the team. Decided I really like them, and so that's how I ended up in Tribe. And so that also talks a lot about the kind of career journeys that you both have gone through. There's all a lot of winding roads, but <laughs> I think one thing I would like to ask is, what are the interesting career lessons that you can share with my audience? Maybe starting with Dan first. Sure. I, so I've done a lot of consulting for governments, uh, big co- big companies, and there there is risk or a fear that if they say something wrong, they'll get hit. You know, it's a, it's all about formal processes, meetings. People are afraid to not provide a fully comprehensive, fully backed up, full bibliography, full data set sort of solution. And what I've learned is. A, you will never have enough time and enough assets to do things in a very structured, step-by-step way. So change what you can immediately and accept what you can't as early as possible. So really it's about speed to solution. It's about an 80-20 rule. It's about just managing your own emotions on what needs to move and what you can actually live with. What is critical? And those things that are critical, you never ever let go. But you need to make that determination early on and then constantly revisit it as, uh, as time goes by. There is no step-by-step. We will have a 6-month, 12-month, 18-month plan, and then we'll resource it and spec it out accordingly. Mm-hmm. The real world doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. How about you, Marcus? Yeah, I mean, um, for me, it's all about the people. People first. So I've been very lucky and been very fortunate to work always with very good people. I think uh, across different industries and across different companies, I was already lucky to have good co-founders who I think share the same value systems who uh, also became my mentors. So currently at Tribe, where many of my friends and colleagues are my mentors, you have previous companies. There have been, I think, good partnerships being developed. I think if you have good people around you and you understand what's the mission, what's your grand vision as well together, what you want to achieve, anything is possible. I spent a lot of time with good people. I think that was my lesson learned, that you've got to really make sure don't waste your time with people who don't want to achieve something that you, you can't share with them. So that's been, I think, my main lesson for the last yeah, five, five, six, seven years. Mm, pretty interesting insight. So the main subject of the day, I want to talk about Tribe. And I think since you're both here and you talk to many people in the fintech industry, so it may be best to also hear what are your thoughts on fintech given that there are so many things happening all at the same time at the moment. So I, I probably will start off with Marcus from just thinking about Tribe as a company. What is the mission and vision of Tribe? Yeah, it's a very grand vision, you have to, you have to say. So there's a Tribe set out with a very large problem statement that we then connected to a vision. It's really that we see a large disconnect of global capital markets that like to be part of the changing and transformative way banking financial services is being done in Southeast Asia, where you do see a supply of capital entering Southeast Asia, but not being connected to yet the consumers of capital in Southeast Asia, let it be SMEs or you know, individuals across the very much emerging and developing countries here in the region. So there is a need for capital in credit in lending. At the same time, there are investors globally sitting in all the major countries that want to invest in Southeast Asia. However, there is like this gap in between that we think technology can solve. And we think that Tribe is an infrastructure platform that will connect global capital markets with the consumer of capital in the countries. So it's really going to be an end-to-end platform that we're building 
to make the flow of capital, and in this case, really credit of SME credit and consumer credit, more efficient and safer and sustainable in the long run to connect these two worlds to get together. So you have the very big, gigantic people with a lot of capital, and then you have all these small medium business sitting right in the Southeast Asia. Just to help my audience a bit more, what is the problem that you're trying to solve with your company? Well, I think maybe if we look at it in numbers, simple one is this, and not sure whether this is a glass half full or a glass half empty problem. There are 650 million people in Southeast Asia and ASEAN more or less, and the estimates are between 60 to 70% of them are unbanked. And unbanked means that they're not within the formal banking system, but they do participate in the shadow banking economy. The challenge there is obviously the cost to borrow are much higher the safeguards and the reassurances are much less. So the first is two-thirds of ASEAN is unbanked, and we would really like to help that number get much lower. The second number I think that is quite salient is there's an estimate that there are 50,000 financial institutions in ASEAN. Of course, there are really big ones. You know, you think of all your big banks, DPS, OCBC. I mean, these are Singapore ones. But other than the big banks, which have a huge war chest, large balance sheets, and a strong technology team, many of the companies or institutions that qualify as an FI, their whole licenses are much smaller. They are one branch, two branches. Their processes are very manual, still pencil and paper. I mean, I've actually we've seen these around the region, and they desperately need low cost technology that can help them just get up to speed and just be able to do their day-to-day business much more efficiently. So, I mean, this is really what we're trying to, to help solve through technology. Do you have like a specific problem given it's at such an initial stage? It looks like there is a big elephant in the room and you are trying to cut it into pieces and trying to fix certain parts of it. And what I'm getting is, is about financial inclusion. So financial inclusion is trying to bring the unbanked into the financial market. Can you talk more about that? I think you're right. I think there's a we are fully aware that there are different type of problems in Southeast Asia. You have an SME funding gap, you have an individual funding gap, you have a lot of, I think what Lian was saying, a lot of financial inclusion being necessary in Southeast Asia. However, we are not the tech company that sits in each of the countries to solve the problems. We are fully aware, sitting in Singapore, we have two advantages. We have a global technology flow. So we are investing, acquiring, and operating global technology companies that want to work on the ground in, in Southeast Asia. So we are a technology hub in Singapore. And secondly, we're also fully aware that we have access to global capital. Singapore being financial hub, one of the top five ones globally, we have access to capital that wants to go into ASEAN. We're sitting here as a, you can call it as a platform, as a, as a connector in Singapore, providing technology and financial flow into ASEAN. So we have, we operate and we acquire technology companies that, for example, SME lending more efficient for banks. We are acquiring companies that do microfinance institution technology systems more efficient, more better. So I think there's a, we are this holding company here in Singapore that operates these technology companies. So that's, I think, is our strength. We're fully aware. We are, we're sitting here being, having access to local markets with a global, uh, global flow. Hmm. It will be interesting to tell me a story. How do you assemble your initial team? Because I hear Lian was talking about you, you got to know the CIO and then it comes together and then all of you are now in one team. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty funny story. I think Tribe has been evolving over time. Um, there's a reason why we're called Tribe, T-R-Y-B, not T-R-I-B-E. We assembled four initial tribes at the beginning. So it was myself and you had then Nels Fritz, who was the former head of CLSA Research in the region, Citibank and SGX. He brings a banker tribe, not a bad tribe to have. 
You had Weyven Yuen, our CIO now. He came from the GIC, MAS, and Rabobank, bringing in, in kind of a regulatory M&A and investor tribe into the mix. And then you had Magnus Bocker, who, who was a former CEO of the SGX and uh, also founding team member of OMX and then run, running NASDAQ for some time, who brought his global technology tribe into, into the mix. So we sat down just, I think, just under two years ago to say, what can we do in Southeast Asia? What can we what do we want to achieve? And so I think the story of Tribe came, came together. We've been very lucky then to, to found great people like Lien, who, who joined us last year, to, who believe in the same mission and have the same value system. We pick people, I think, who don't necessarily are the t- traditional banker type. I think we, we have people who, who want to change the system. We want people who believe in the ASEAN story who have picked Singapore as their home and believe in the platform that we can build here in Singapore as an IP hub, as a, as a really as a hub to, to develop technology and get it into the region. So I think it's been, it's been, it's been a good, good journey. We, we carefully pick people who want to hire, uh, who want to join us. Yeah, it's been now, we're 10 people actually now on the team that, that do different part of the business. The question is that you also, in the process of actually, you also acquire companies, you work with companies that are actually dealing with this problem of financial inclusion. What are the products and services which Tribe will be building or actually also acquiring in order to build on top of the current platform that it has? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Thanks, Bernard. Really, you know, we think about this a lot, but most topical is this. just this past week, last week, we spent the whole week talking to one of the prospective companies that we are in late stage discussions about acquisition. It is a core banking system as obviously the deal isn't transacted. I'm not going to give much more details about who they are, but... The whole notion of why we are looking at mid-cost, low-cost core banking system is that this is the underlying functionality that many of your MFIs, credit unions will need in order to be able to operate. As I've mentioned before, if you look at some of the ways that it is done, pencil and paper is definitely still there. Excel is still there. And Excel is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Excel except that it's not specialized. It cannot scale. So what we're really looking at is something that allows a bank to do its core business, the core business logic of, can I take loans? Can I take deposits? Can I issue loans? What is the rates at which these go out at? Can I lend money? What is the the repayment terms? Do I have a CRM? All these are basic things that a bank or a credit union needs to function. And right now, many of them actually don't have this software. So this acquisition is something that we think would help build out one of the key planks of our platform. On top of which, we can obviously throw in a lot more of the very sexy buzzwords that people talk about, such as analytics, big data, AI, so on and so forth. But we're trying to solve the baseline problem and we believe that there is real financial returns to us as well for doing our job well by being able to serve these financial institutions within Southeast Asia. If I may chip in there, Colin, a second. I think if you look at the bigger picture right now, what happens in financial services and banking is that the big players are challenged by particularly the tech giants. So if you ask a big bank in Singapore here, they would argue that a fintech startup wouldn't disrupt them. It's more like a Chinese or you know an Indian or European tech giant coming into the market to take away the consumers and offer financial services towards them. I think this is a fight on the top that we don't want to get into. I think we see the tier three and tier four bank, as Lena is saying, that are having a very loyal customer base in the emerging markets in Philippines, in Indonesia, who are part of a very big shadow banking system. And they won't necessarily go right now to tier one, tier two banks. I think there's an opportunity to help bring these more low income groups into the middle class and be part of the growth in Southeast Asia and giving them a new banking experience. So all the products that Lian has mentioned are part of our tri-platform. So it's loans, mortgages, insurance, and they're very digital, very digital, in digital way, very digital channels that I think are more relevant to the 
millennial class that is the one I think to look at in Southeast Asia. This is interesting because if you think about it from another way is that your business is actually a business to business and you are letting the business that who use your digital platform to actually acquire the customers for you. Where are you with respect to the fintech supply chain then? That means you are just going to mainly deal with banks that might want to be able to serve the unbanked or do you I mean, whichever way you will move? Yeah, I think it's a, what is banking? What is a bank? Right? I think there's a very traditional way of looking at it. It's, it's a license, you know, you, you take deposits and you, you're aware of capital. This, I think, is all getting disrupted and changed. I think that the way that consumers are behaving and, are, and, and also SMEs and corporates and want banking is changing. It tends to be instant. We're very used to social media. I think it's going to be a very different way of how we perceive banking. At the same time, the bank in itself is changing. I think you have uh, Basel II, Basel III, these massive regulations globally, Solvency II, Mifid II coming up that are changing the way bank can warehouse capital and has, can hold capital on the balance sheet. So I think you have two very much driving forces that are then triggering technology to come in to change the way that has been happened. So it's all about convergence, all about that you can see fintech being the, the glue between logistics, supply chain, banking, uh, your whole e-commerce, and all across you have cash moving. Right? So I think fintech is really the, 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 the pipe, and that's why we call it infrastructure, what we're doing, to move capital more efficient across the different ecosystems to connect what consumers and SMEs actually want. It's not anymore about going to an ATM or going to a branch and do banking. It's about using Gojek or Uber to do banking like same time with Alibaba while you're sitting in hospital and getting insurance. I think this all this come together and that's where I think we believe fintech is is a connecting glue and, and we want to provide this the, the railway, the pipes of moving capital across. Mm. So but we will get into the topic a little bit mm. deeper. But recently you have raised thirty million from various investors. Can you talk about your investors and the fundraising process? Yeah we've been uh, very lucky to find the great uh, supporters for our vision have been working quite a few significantly the last uh, one of years on forming the tribe. We already had uh, last year uh, a family friends round being um, bring on board, which allowed us to do the first few transactions, in particular Chinsei, a Swedish company, and also MC Payment, a Singaporean payment company. So we have covered this part to, I think, bring a family friends round in. Now we recently announced, yes, we were excited to announce the Makara Innovation Fund has committed $13 million US dollars in capital to, to Tribe. And Makara is, is an interesting vehicle in Singapore. It's been set up recently where the first deal was to invest in MyRepublic uh, last year, November. Uh, $17 million US dollars committed to MyRepublic. Now Tribe was the second deal from Makara. I think it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Well, I mean, the thing is, maybe just to add on, is that the natural fit between a platform like MyRepublic and Tribe is really just the broader vision of what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be a platform? You know, MyRepublic obviously is a digital services platform, and Tribe seeks to be a fintech platform, and that's why Makara sees that there's a whole bunch of opportunities where they can build a meta platform, if you will. On top of that, I think on the other side, on the much more traditional side, many of our investors are family, family offices. And I think one very interesting thing for us has been in the process of speaking to these investors, they are not just people that are putting money into Tribe. They are also, many of them have their own original business lines and then they either have significant financing needs or they run their own banks to service their, their employees, particularly in, say, agricultural, slightly more labor-intensive fields. And as a result, they are also people that say, we need your technology we are a potential conduit for the solutions that you guys want to do in Southeast Asia. So 
Our investors are not just people that offer us money, but they also give us landscaping of Southeast Asia and are also potential receptacles where we can put our and deploy our technology. And so I think good selection of that, a lot of that really just is self-reinforcing in a very positive way. The only thing I can say is that we had an announcement a few weeks ago, so watch the space for a few others to come very soon because it's not the only one that we're planning in the next few weeks' time. Mm, okay, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I want to come to a much more interesting topic, which is looking at the fintech across Asia-Pacific. And I'm sure you both have thought about this for a while and surveyed the space because Tribe is actually trying to solve to be the platform for bringing the unbanked. And with all this flow of money, a lot of what fintech is becoming is actually helping to change the infrastructure of that and I think it's beginning to be more less than consumer facing but more and more into the deeper infrastructure where regulatory bodies will be needed because they need to regulate and their central monetary authorities to looking at this so I want to ask you both what are the key verticals that are currently flourishing within Asia Pacific with regards to fintech itself? Let me start. I mean, it's it's a very big question. So I'm in Asia Pacific. Obviously, it's a, it's a huge, huge space to to talk about, and every country in itself has its own fintech trends and also in fintech needs. Yeah? So it's, and problems to solve. So I think we've got to be careful not to pick all one bucket here. And maybe my own personal story I can just share. I mean. I was in London for four and a half years doing fintech there and being very part of the European fintech drive, which was more transformative, which was more how do you help the existing banking sector to do better banking? And, and that was more B2B conversation, I would say, because most of the people are banked there anyway. So you trust the bank and you have to do something about it. Coming to Asia now, and South, Southeast Asia in particular, I think it changed. On, on one hand side, I came here three years ago and I remember there were maybe 10 fintech companies or something like that. Now you have three years later, 350 in Singapore alone. Uh, um, so it was an explosion of just simple fintech. The trends have changed. I think they started to be more B2C. You can see many of the growing fruits by payments and lending. That was the Southeast Asian, I think, trend. You have seen how China has taken its own route given their lack of infrastructure, the lack of regulations to a certain extent, the gray zone, there have been Alibaba and Tencent moving in to provide their payment systems and now adding on to the lending bit. India has, again, has done more of a top-down view with uh, democratization, with UPI, with the government being very much involved into the driving of fintech, if you like. Not to forget, obviously, our dear friends down there in Australia and New Zealand. I just came back from New Zealand yesterday. In fact, they're having a very also consumer-driven fintech there where you have seen a very under the cover, under, under the radar, but very interesting, very successful fintech companies working with the banks to do better banking services to the consumers as well. So I think this is a very broad, like, short snapshot of what I see happening. It's diving a bit deeper that you can see, particularly in the region here, and Leanne has already alluded to it earlier, it's, it's the entire bit of middle class rising, it's the financial inclusion, and payments has been there for some time. I think you can see in Singapore a strong view on how to be more transformative on the B2B side, particularly RecTech, so security, encryption, KYC, AML, all these very heavy middle office, back office solutions are necessary here. Going into the markets around Singapore, the hinterland, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, Myanmar, Vietnam, it's more about how do you offer banking services through digital channels, uh, so telcos, e-commerce, logistic companies that I think offer a new type of fintech. It almost seems that the definition of a bank is going to change. The analogy I always like to allude to is like a phone today is no longer a phone, it's actually a personal computer device. I think everyone has a holy grail. Every industry has a, at any point in time, every industry has its holy grail. And right now, everyone, the holy grail is uh, to be the trusted platform for a large group of consumers 
The challenge is that to get to the Holy Grail, many people have different lead-in points. So take two examples that come to mind. One is, do you start off as a bank where you have a trusted set of customers and they know you, you know them, you've done your KYC, and then you slowly try to become digital? Or do you start off digital, meaning say you're a telco, and then you have a, done some semi-KYC, but your whole DNA is much much more digital, much faster, it's much smaller transaction sizes, and really you want to you want to gain the trust and offer the services such that people start moving on your platform and say do a house, do a car, do a motorcycle mortgage, and then you become the trusted financial platform. So for example, one of the partners we work with closely and we know well is Yoma Bank in Myanmar, and they partnered with Telenor. So it is a bank partnering with the telco, and this really gets you to the holy grail. There are the many instances where we see this. For example, companies that try to do payroll, timesheet, time clocking, and that's actually very low margin. It's a very, low, it's a very functional utility. But the instant I have captured a company's payroll, banking, timesheet, then after that, this is a fully qualified list. I know exactly when they're getting paid. Then I can move into pension, pension funding, insurance, mortgage, and, and the whole shebang. That is still approaching the holy grail, but from a B2B and always starting small. So I, I guess my point is there are many different lead-in ways in order to achieve this. And what we see is that the challenge now is many companies are taking different paths. We'll see which one has the most traction within uh, different sectors. Maybe very quickly on the second point is, I still remember three, four years ago, this classic slide which was unbundling the bank and against the bank's fun functions, you would see all the list of the tech disruptors that were trying to eat them one slice of the pie at a time. Three, four years later, we see that banks are still there, that banks are still doing well, and that many of the startup disruptors have fallen by the wayside. And so really what matters in finance is, A, do you have the balance sheet? Do you have the license? And do you have the relationships? So unless you have a better way of getting these three things collectively at the same time, I'd say that the banks are probably sitting pretty. They can see who emerges when the dust has settled and either buy them, incorporate them, corporate venture arm, or, you know, them into the company. So I guess this is another thing that I've been thinking about. So Marcus likes to call it funding the bank. Yes, great. I think it's banks do have a license, have a balance sheet and have a stronghold in, in, in their own industry, but they don't have the data. I think that's where in Asia, particularly, not necessarily APEC, but in Asia, you can see banking is way more driven based on data. And that's, again, comparing to my European counterparts, they, they have credit bureaus, they have a lot of their data sources available for the last decades in lending and payments and whatnot. Asia doesn't have that. Asia is just about getting into the data game. You have uh, also less regulation around data, data privacy. So I can see how you can see very new models being emerging here now. China is a, obviously a good example there, where banking based on data is so key for credit scoring, for, for lending, for, for, for anything you want to do with banks. And that's, I think, where the, the, the data bank, I call it here in Southeast Asia, is the next one to look at. And, and you can see no new business models being emerging there. One can think of the e-commerce platforms, for example, Alibaba, or even social platforms like WeChat. They are actually now the new credit bureaus, mm. right? Because you actually getting the user... Social credit. To, yeah, getting them to make the transaction on that. So here are some of the areas that I'm also trying to wrap my head around. And I spoke to Zenon Capron recently about the fintech in both China and Asia-Pacific. What is really driving 
like innovation where we think about things like P2P lending, cryptocurrency, and we obviously will talk about ICO at some point, blockchain, you know, digital payments and insure tech. I mean, this seems to be very big area. I'll call it the sexy areas, but I'm sure there's actually a lot more about it. People would think about fintech infrastructure like cybersecurity in banks, absolutely required. Trust, absolutely required. And what you guys doing to be on top of, to create a platform to actually go into the unbanked, that's also absolutely required. How do you think about that? I think you always look at the drivers behind this. And, and, and I, so what is driving these trends? And you can, again, strip it apart in different sub-verticals. So you mentioned a few. P2P lending is one of them. Certainly, in China has been one of the markets to look at P2P lending because there wasn't much regulation around lending. Uh, and banks, uh, the state-owned banks particularly, didn't do a good job in lending to consumers and capital and, 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 and uh, corporate, sorry, that so hence it was a nice niche to explore and to go into. So I think it's driven by, in this case, of the lack of regulation and, however, the need of consumers and businesses to access capital. I think these are always the two drivers that I can really see how fintech is developing. Cryptocurrencies is another one, lack of regulations, lack of kind of oversight. So it's a nice space to go into and explore how can you, you know, transfer money without any kind of intermediary as a cryptocurrency. Yeah, you have the whole space around security coming up, which, again, is, again, driven by regulation by governments. So it's not necessarily a startup area to go into, to be honest, because it's it's a heavily regulated and very complex industry to go in. So I can see many larger tech players going into cybersecurity and offering new fintech solutions there. So I think that's on the one side. And then the lending bit, the financial inclusion bit, that's driven by consumers. I think that's where you have governments seeing a mandate to, to offer more financial inclusion. So you can see the ADB, the World Bank, IFC and other large foundations providing grants and services to do financial inclusion. But at the same time, consumers in Southeast Asia really want you know, to access financial services in a proper, less shadow banking way. And hence, they're driving the demand. And hence, they are really making sure that technology that comes to market is being used by them. I mean, I, I think it's also important to note that there are different needs that consumers have there's a difference between I need to fund a business need as opposed to I'm trying to make an investment. And really a lot of a lot of finance, a lot of what we've been talking about just has been increasing access. The thing about ICOs is that they actually increase access to ability to invest as well. So it creates additional liquidity, not necessarily with the same kind of safeguards that as being a publicly listed company would be. So right now, if your retail investor can go into the market and assume much more risk than if he were trying to invest in a public company, then there's actually no need for a company to go public. So I think there's one thing that we need to make a distinction between that. On the personal needs side, on the loan side, or even on the insurance side, Marcus, your earlier point on data is actually really salient. When data becomes much more available, and I think recently in Singapore, we're trying to push through legislation around uh, full medical health data sharing, what does that mean for insurance premiums? I was having a debate with a friend and they, they were very worried about the fact that if they had a pre-existing condition, then their insurance premiums will rise. I say, well, I think that net-net AI, I, I trust the system and I think that it will allow better pricing. So the, better, the point I'm making here is that what the data allows is much better pricing because in all of finance, it is about a transaction. There is a buyer, there's a seller, and there's a price. And we're just trying to get enough liquidity in the marketplace, take marketplace at the right price. So even for insurance, of course, efficiency is a part of lowering the cost, but it is understanding what is the risk so that I can price it right. My belief is that with much better health data, for example, then your insurance cost will fall because everybody goes there and says, I'm not a smoker. I know that you know Singapore's rates of smoking 
is whatever it is out there, right? Fifteen to 20%. But I don't think anybody ever says that they're a smoker on their health risk. So technically anyone buying insurance now is subsidizing all the people who technically still smoke. So my belief, data will drive better pricing for consumers. Regulations probably need to come in where people who are trying to invest don't necessarily have the safeguards and the skills to do so. So I have this view because of what uh, Alibaba and Tencent have been doing in the region. So they have started to bring what works in China with their payment infrastructure into Southeast Asia. So today I can actually start putting my credit cards into my Alipay and WeChat wallets on that. And what I'm actually seeing is that because they built a separate payment system, and and this also this is the problem that why a lot of the U.S. or West Western companies couldn't penetrate into to do anything on financial inclusion because the payment infrastructure that is owned by Visa, Mastercard, even PayPal, is just too expensive. It's just impossible to do. Now you have suddenly a very very efficient, I would say cheap infrastructure that's brought in by the Chinese going into these emerging markets, do you see a possible inundation of the Chinese payment systems controlling that? Or there's another alternative, which is what DBS does. They got the bank's license and created something called Digital Bank, uh, which is which we talk about because there are many people tackling it. The, corp- the large corporations are coming in as innovators too. So where do you see this whole landscape shaping? It's exciting times. Honestly, I think that's the, I love the dynamic. I love how South Asia is going to be a very interesting battleground for, 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 for banks versus Chinese tech giants. Yeah, so I'm uh, looking forward to the next five years. Uh, just, let's not forget that also the real rise of Tencent and, 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 and Alibaba only came as well once they acquired a banking license. So they have built payment rates since 2002. And then they got a WeBank and MyBank, and then they really kicked off. So I think we should not forget that even them, they in China have a banking arm to it, right? So mm-hmm. they have their own technology infrastructure, payment mostly, and then others now, but but also they have a banking license. So they their movement to Southeast Asia now was via uh, e- uh, e-commerce and logistics to then acquire payment licenses, but they still rely on the banks in the region. Uh, so they are partnering with many of the banks together, which is not too public, but they're choosing the right ones in Indonesia, in, in Malaysia, in Philippines, and we spoke to many of them. And so now it's kind of the, the next two years' time, it will be interesting to see how this dynamic will work out, what's the pricing behind it, what does it actually mean for the consumer at the end of the day, what Alibaba can offer. Is it as cheap as it is in China because they own a bank, or is it expensive as, like you say, PayPal and Visa because they still have to work with the banks? So I think it's, it's the early days to really measure the success there, but at least the technology is coming in to provide a better ecosystem for the consumer. I agree. The pricing is that not, I think, fully um, obvious because it's too early days to know the negotiations. Mm-hmm. But you're building on Jonas' point about pricing, right? It's a buyer and seller, and if the pricing is right, then the market dynamics would follow, follow. it through. Yeah. For a start, I, I welcome this, right? I, I really believe in competition. So let me just start by thinking about another industry, take Uber and DT. So now Uber has exited China, so it's now DT choosing, and they don't have any serious competitors. And what everyone's concern has always been is that the instant your Grab and your Uber, one of them exits the market, then you're just going to get significant price squeezing, and then the consumer... At that point in time, the consumers start to suffer. At this point, service is good, and pricing is good for the consumers. The question is, will that be true in future? But until that future comes, this competition is good because in any system, you get a huge amount of proliferation and then consolidation and then a monopoly. Hopefully not. 
So while we are in the proliferation stage, I don't think it's a good thing. Take the example of payments in Indonesia. Anyone who's been there has seen the rack of payment terminals that any POS has there. 10 to 12 different cards. So that's not a good thing. If you have two or three, I think it's much better. So that is, to me, the consolidation phase. Consolidation phase, then, is a competition of distribution, access, and the margins and the pricings that you get. China will rise on the simple basis that the Chinese yuan and the Chinese outbound consumer, Chinese outbound businesses are much greater consumers now. In the same way that JCB 20, 30 years ago rose on the back of the Japanese going out, now, I mean, all the pause take Alipay. I mean, five years ago, you couldn't use your Chinese card. I couldn't use my Chinese card. Now I can use my Chinese card everywhere. So now in the consolidation phase, I think it's great. But going forward, will that be a winner takes all? It's going to depend on the pricing, relationships with bank. But clearly the Chinese, with the power of their ability to spend, it's going to be like the universal, you know, the reserve currency that the exorbitant privilege that, that the US ex- enjoys that is shifting to China clearly, especially so in our part of the world. It's already happened. So I'm going to talk about the regulators now. <laughs> so this is interesting because what the Chinese government did to Alibaba and Tencent was they gave them free reign. They built out their payment networks. Now they've grown big and they started to put limits on them. And they did the same thing with their mutual funds. Like originally they had only 20% reserves, but now the Chinese government decided, no, you need 50% reserves. And you need to go through all your payment transactions in digital payments into one million, which is basically where the Chinese government have a really a bird's eye view of what is really going on in the financial transaction world. Now, Asia-Pacific is obviously a very heterogeneous market. There are many, many nations. They all have different rules and regulations. I'll put my question in this way. What are the challenges faced by regulators? That's the first part of the question. There is a second part of the question is, how does these companies like, for example, Tencent, Alibaba, or even down to the startups, you know, navigate around these regulations in each different countries? Because each regulation in a different country is a different tax on how you actually do business in that country itself. Yeah, thanks, Bernard, for dropping the R regulation bomb here, um, <laughs> which can always be a minefield to go into. But <laughs> I think from my point of view, to answer your first question first, I think uh, the people part is the most important part. And if I look at regulators across the world, it doesn't really matter where you are, which market you're in. I do believe that technology is moving so fast that the regulators are having sometimes a hard time catching up. And I don't expect them to change regulation overnight. I don't expect them to, to just you know, change the entire framework because there's a reason why it's in place for the last hundreds of years or decades. Yeah? So please keep it as it is so that my money in the bank is safe. Yeah? I want that as a consumer. But appreciate the, the, the change and the, the speed of technology and be up to date so at least that there's an open communica- communication and open conversation on what is necessary and what's not necessary to change. I think that's a, it's just having um, an, a dialogue, open dialogue, that you as a regulator can talk with startups, with banks, with te- technology giants about what's up to date, what's not up to date anymore. And I feel there's a, there's a bit of a friction in the system right now, uh, has been and is still there, to have a trusted and open conversation on what's necessary, what's not necessary. Well, you're absolutely right, Marcus, which is, if you look across ASEAN, everyone is at a different stage. Everyone's path, dependency and history is different. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of, because of the speed at which innovation is happening, there's a lot of best, I won't call it best practice, but just Sharing what is at the frontier. So think of the IFC and the ASEAN Financial Innovators Innovation Network. Network, right? Which is, IFC is here in Singapore and they've got this ASEAN uh, Innovators Network, which they are trying to push out. 
participation in these multilateral, multinational groupings really help. We were recently in Philippines and we were speaking to the ADB and the ADB, I think, other than its development mandate, there's also a very strong thought leadership angle there. So this year, Singapore's ASEAN chair, I think we do finance as a service relatively well. IFC is here, ADB is there. There are a whole bunch of these multinational groupings that can help level up all the different jurisdictions. Ultimately, it is their own choice for the sake and for the benefit of their own country in order to say what rules and what laws do I bring on and not. But I think being plugged into and understanding what is current state would help a lot and also help harmonize things like cross-border transactions. If you want money in, then you also need to be able to plug into the global system, right? As opposed to say, you can't say, I'm going to control everything internally and I still want access to external capital. It just doesn't work that way. That's called capital controls. So the second part of the question about how do you actually work with regulators, what do you recommend startups and others to, to how do you... I think it's, it's about having, again, it's in having educated and progressive conversation. It's not about saying, I want to disrupt the system, I don't want to change regulation, I think regulations are bad. I think you, you need to find a common ground. and Everyone has to move a bit. Everyone has to move a step forward at least. So to find the same language on how can we together inclusively transformatively work on this. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, a winner takes all, as I said earlier. I think it's a lot of moving parts right now in this very complex industry. So everyone has to has to appreciate each other and make it work. I think with the last five years, the conversation started to say, we want to change way banking, and many startups said we want to disrupt banks. Now has shifted towards transformative on help the, the banks to change. So I think that's a that's a way forward, and, and everyone has to do their own homework to how to really uh, use the right lingo, the right conversation, right, the right dialogue. Yeah. But I, I think it's good to have the fintech startups actually disrupting the industry because I think even for the big corporations, you can actually leverage that as a way to persuade regulators. I can tell you a very short anecdotal story, which is like, uh, for example, the actual remittance companies have been actually been trying to propose to like the regulators in Singapore that we can actually take a photo and actually do KYC, but they refused to let us do it. And then suddenly one, two startups started violating that. And then we were like, oh, you allow the startup to do it. So why can't you let me do that? And then suddenly the composition changed. Because you're too big. I mean, the problem is you can <laughs> let the small guys without consequence do it. That's right. That's where the arbitrage is, right? Because <clears throat> you allow someone to do it. So therefore that rule has already been shifted. So you're able to push the boundaries and then be negotiated to allow that kind of KYC to happen. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's a clear mandate of regulator to protect or to be in the interest of the consumer. Mm. Right? And if that's the case, I don't have an issue with it. I think if regulator says we want to protect the banks, mm, there's my bit of a difficulty there. Mm. But if you say, sure, taking sending money um, and by using a photo to, to verify a KYC, that is, I don't see any, any, any harm to consumers. So hence, I totally will support that movement. Um, and, and it's where goods to push the boundaries for sure. Yeah. So in the next one, two years, what's going to happen with fintech? I mean, we, we haven't really touched a lot about what's going on with ICOs, blockchains. What, what's your crystal ball look like? You know, no pressure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. If I would know, I would obviously um, would, would go into this immediately. But I think it's a... It's looking and focusing on Singapore and South Asia. I mean, this is, I think, our home market. So let's kind of focus on those areas. I do see that you have a few more global fintech companies coming to South Asia. I think there's going to be just not Chinese, but also Americans, Europeans coming and setting up the headquarters in Singapore and moving to certain markets with local players, local shareholders into let's say, Malaysia, Indonesia that are of interest. I think that you see the continues to see the convergence of fintech. I think the, the, the fintech gets broader and broader as we speak. 
I can see how supply chain, uh, the whole SME lending space is going to change. So inventory financing, trade financing, very old, old industries with two or 300 years of paper legacy is going to get digitized. And Singapore is obviously moving ahead with their national trade platform there. So I think there's going to be big space coming up that people don't look, look at. So the very boring stuff where digitization is being pushed into. Consumer side, I'm sorry for the consumers, I don't see too much change in the next two and one of the This will not be a big change, it will incrementally change step by step because regulators are making sure it doesn't move too fast, which is not a bad thing. It's more the B2B side where I can see the big digitization push where SMEs are joining the digital game, big corporates are joining the digital game, and that's where fintech on the back of that will roll in to make the process more efficient. So the next billion dollars are going to come from fintech that's very boring. Yes, I have to say that, but uh, we hope so. We hope so because we we are boring. <laughs> so we would like to be the boring, quiet, boring behind the scenes. Yes. What? Any closing thoughts? Um, this is an exciting space. I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of fun over the past few months learning about it. Okay, so it comes to the closing. So I have two guests. So I'm going to ask you each one of you. Can you all recommend a book, podcast, movie, or something that has recently impacted your work or personal life? I can start. I mean, I have to do a quick plug here. I'm sorry, Bernard, but we're also starting our own podcast very soon. Mm. Uh, so we, um, in, in a few weeks' time, you can probably see um, a new podcast coming up that covers the broader technology finance spectrum in APAC, but particularly Asia, uh, ASEAN, which we think is necessary. So that's one. Watch, watch the space. But secondly, also, I am um, being German and, and, and being here for three years now. I recently read a book, uh, How Asia Works, uh, John Selden, and mm. I think it's a great book that covers many of the different areas of uh, you know how, how seven, seven countries in Asia has developed the last 50 years. So I can recommend everyone, Asians and non-Asians, to read this book and, and dive deep, deep, deep deeper into these topics. Yeah. I think my stocking filler for previously were two books. One was called The 100-Year Life. The other was Being Mortal, which I think many people are familiar with. But the underlying premise there was simple. We are all going to live longer on average. But as you live longer, the question is, do you live better? And as you live longer, do you die better? So 100-year life is about, as you live longer, how do you live better? How do you take care of your financial health, your emotional health, your friends, your networks, and constantly reinvent yourself? And being mortal was the question of, as we live longer, we have a longer period of decline. Thomas Hobbes said, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The only thing worse than that is to have a life that is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and long. So, you know, he was exploring the, the themes of how, how we die in slow senescence and decline. And if we think about that very seriously, and then being a typical engineer or scientist, you work backwards and say, if that is the end state, how do I now at this point work forwards and not end up in that state? And maybe as I understand how I will die, maybe it will allow me to understand what is important so I can live better. So two books, 100 Year Life and Being Mortal. I mean, I, I, I thought... Reading them together is quite quite nice as, as a pairing. I'll supplement that with a book recommendation. I actually end up rereading Keynes' original book on employment and mm. on the literacies on economics. And there was a passage which I kind of skipped it or skimmed off, but I thought it was becoming important and I'm starting to think about mm. it. It's about the nature of work. Apparently, he made a prediction on yep. the, the economy, the, the growth of the economy that follows exactly what had happened today. But what was interesting in his other prediction, which didn't happen, was that humans were actually supposed to be working less, but we seem to be working more. Yep. I'm trying to get back into thinking about that a little bit more and figuring that out. But of course, there's always one last question. How can my audience find you? 
I mean, very practically spoken, you can find us Sunday mornings at McRitchie Reservoir in Singapore. We're running there. Uh, so if anyone wants to join running, of course. But I think seriously, we, yeah, we, we are online, www.tribegroup.com. Email address, Marcus with a K at tribegroup.com. Drop us an email, same as Liam at tribegroup.com. Uh, we are online on any channels, but also sitting in Singapore, we're very open for having conversations for anyone that wants to come through Singapore FinTech into ASEAN. So please reach out. And, uh, well, to your plug, a, a slightly different plug, but your earlier point on, on holidays and having more leisure time, Marcus didn't say, but he just came back from New Zealand's uh, coast-to-coast race. So he just raced from one coast of, of New Zealand to the other. Myself on the side, I really enjoy mountaineering and outdoor sports. I've climbed Everest, I've climbed K2 and uh, been to the North Pole. So I also have a blog that recounts some of my stories at Adventures with Lien dot wordpress.com if, if you've got time to burn and you want to see stories about being in minus 50 to plus 50 celsius you can find me there as well mm, that's probably very interesting and i'll definitely put a link to your linkedin your twitters and your other social media accounts and you can find me at bernard leong or at bernardleong.com subscribe to us at analyze asia a-n-a-l-y-s-e asia you can find us on itunes stitcher soundcloud acast and Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me, give me feedback, recommend us on Overcast with a star, five stars on iTunes, and of course, drop me your feedback. Once again, uh, Marcus, Lian, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks Bernard. Thank you.